Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. For decades, there has been so much research, and most of it shows that standard diversity trainings has little to no effect. Usually the effects are short-term, uh, is about understanding certain concepts, or even people start like planning future behaviors, but it never really happens actually that you start really putting it in practice. Some studies even find that positive, sh positive short-term effects, and some of them even find negative effects. Hmm. My question in today's episode on why DEI programs do not always work and what we should be doing instead. And we're going to be talking quite a lot about biases. And I can tell you already now, I live out of biases because this is the way that the brain feels a little bit more comfortable with similar situations. Like for instance, when I read the story about Maria, I was, thinking, wow, this is my type of people, similar background with a lot of diversity, Latino, Latino origin, living in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the Western world. Well, that's kind of, she stole my story. Now, let me tell you why, Maria. So I was mentioning, mentioning a bit about her multicultural background, which I think that that has affected the, uh, the reason why she has decided to run write a book about diversity and inclusions. She has a book that she wrote called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace. Uh, she is the president of MSM Global Consulting, which is kind of like the company who has an holistic approach to change and leadership development, which is quite a lot. In, there is a lot of interaction because we are going to discuss about that, that leadership has a lot of influence on the way we deploy and we make diversity and inclusion uh, more powerful uh, and more impactful. Um, now, Maria, I, this story, your personal story has defined what you have been doing most of your life. Tell me a little bit more about the background. How the, where did you grow up? I mean, we have been discussing about your last name, but tell me a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Yvonne, for having me on the podcast. I'm really so pleased and honored to be here with you. And I agree with you. I, too, hold biases. Uh, and in the minute that I saw your bio and read about you, I had the same sense of connection, right? When we, when we hear about people or when we meet people with whom we share some sense of uh, community, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, shared uh, background or experience, there's this immediate sort of energy and connection. Um, so yes, I am American, uh, US born. I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, which is sort of right in the middle of the United States. And uh, for it, all intents and purposes, my upbringing and my childhood was very sort of prototypical Midwestern, white, Christian, middle-class upbringing. Uh, and most of the people in my community looked and sounded 
like I do. Uh, and yet there was also a, an ongoing undercurrent of difference. Um, I grew up in a multicultural family, a multilingual family. Uh, my father's side of the family were refugees twice over. Um, they, my, my grandmother fled with her family from Istanbul, Turkey uh, during the Armenian genocide. And at the time, the United States had actually closed its borders to non-Western uh, European immigrants. And so at the time, my Armenian family could not come into the United States, even though they had a number of other family members who had already emigrated there. So they went to Cuba. And my father was born and grew up in Havana. And uh, he was um, Varujan and spoke Armenian in the house. And he was Florentino speaking Spanish on the streets and at school. And then when he was a young man, uh, he and his family came to the United States finally and started all over again, uh, learning a new language, trying to assimilate to a new culture and make sense of the world around them. Um, and I think that really shaped, even though it was not my direct experience, that sense of what it's like to be other was something that I was adjacent to. And, um, and growing up in a family with, uh, you know, with my father from that background and my mother who grew up in a tiny little farming community in Northern Michigan, where for generations, everyone spoke Polish. We had this very interesting cultural uh, mixture happening in my household. Um, and so I think that that really sort of uh, set me on the path of being very curious uh, to learn and to understand uh, more about just the interplay of cultural identities. Um, and, and my parents were both educators. So I think that, you know, that, that idea of endless learning and curiosity to know more about the world was always something that was uh, prevalent in my house. So I think that really sort of personally sent me on my, on my journey to explore these issues of um, cultural identity in our society, in our workplaces, in our communities. What is sometimes a little bit difficult to understand uh, for people who don't come from a multicultural background is that it's not the way you look that makes a difference. It's not, for instance, when I am in the middle of a street in, I, I grew up in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, well, I do speak French, so there is no differentiation. It's quite a diverse, let's say, the community in, uh, uh, in Geneva. The problem comes on the set of different beliefs, mindset that you have within the, uh, the community. So, and it doesn't matter that, for instance, Maria looks like if I didn't know anything about her background, I would say the standard typical American girl. So nothing will differentiate, but there is this influence on, of our family because they tell us the stories. They tell us the stories that impregnate on us because we are defined with a set of values that have been built by the norms of our nearest community, which is our family. So everything that they have been suffering, all the stories that they tell us about integration, about different ways of, uh, of interacting with the rest of the community has affected us and has formatted um, somehow our thoughts about what is a community, what it is. And the worst is that the older we become, then the more we start looking for this sense of belonging, right? Like, 
what are we? And that happened to me. Am I Latino? Uh, or is do I have to look for it in somewhere in my in the roots of my family, in the Jewish family that we had back like many years ago, uh, even though I am not following that religion. So it is, there's a lot of questions that come after 40, by the way, okay, these 40s, um, <laughs> that, that we ask ourselves. Now, I wanted to get back, Maria, about the core of our topic. So we are discussing about the fact that if DEI training as they are, these standard trainings are working or not, uh, is what is your feeling? So is training alone working or are, are they, there any other alternatives that in order to have like sustainable impact in DEI? Because I think I kind of mentioned it in the introduction. Yes, it works. Like you are aware, you start thinking about it. You have good intentions about, um, um, I have to control my biases, but then it doesn't happen. Then we forget it. After a couple of weeks, it's gone. So what works? And what doesn't? Yes. So it's a complex question, uh, or maybe a complex answer, because um, I think that uh, a lot of the arguments that we've seen play out in um, in the sort of public and the media has been either one or the other, uh, and and it's it's a little bit of both. And there are absolutely there's research that indicates that. Um, that training around diversity, equity, and inclusion does lead to not only higher levels of awareness and knowledge, but it can lead to behavior change. And it needs to be done in a holistic way. So we know the training that doesn't work. Mm. Mandatory, you are biased, stop being biased training mm. <laughs> doesn't work. Um, also training that is really just a, a lecture, a presentation with facts and figures and statistics is not necessarily going to shift people's way of thinking either. Um, because we're talking about identity and our identity and our personal beliefs, values and lived experiences are so intertwined with how we see ourselves and how we perceive the world. What you were saying Yvonne about how it, you know, it shapes our, our lenses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the type of training that does work and, and research has um, sort of borne this out is um, just what you and I have been doing over the last few minutes, storytelling, giving us an opportunity to uh, share perspectives in a space that is psychologically safe, where we can take the time to hear from other individuals and humanize one another across our differences. Um, that's where we start to see change happen. When we can engage in dialogue where it's not about getting it right, saying the right thing, doing the right thing, but more so about um, exploring together and learning how, regardless of our good intentions, the impact of our actions or our words may not land the way we want them to. Um, and so being able to do that and then have some sense of action, right? What are the tools that I can take with me that if I apply these, they will help me to be able to uh, navigate those culturally challenging moments, those, those conflicts that arise. Um, and so I think that's the training. When, when we've seen training that focuses on perspective sharing 
and some sort of strategic call to action. Uh, we, we see uh, not only more learning retention, but behavior change. It also has to be followed up by accountability measures, as well as um, a strategic focus on culture change across the organization. So for example, I think a lot of times training becomes the, uh, the easy access tactical solution to the problem that leaders see around diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations. What do we do? Train everyone. Mm. And to your point earlier, that does not lead to long-term success. And in fact, we've actually seen it sometimes create backlash if people feel as though they're being forced into this um, rather than seeing it as a value for themselves as well as for the organization. But when organizations and leaders see this as a as mission critical. This is deeply embedded in our values. This is who we are. And we are going to hold ourselves and one another accountable because we know it's not only the right thing to do, but it will make all of us better and it will help our organization thrive. Um, and when those actions are put into place, uh, and, and maintained and reinforced. So it can't just be go through training. It has to be, are we practicing this on a day-to-day -day scale? Um, and are the people at the highest levels of the organization modeling these behaviors and holding others accountable? Um, so there are absolutely success stories that indicate that that culture shift is happening and can happen. And training plays a critical role in that, but it can't be the only solution. Hmm. The, the thing that I wanted to highlight is what you said when you talk about culture change. So a culture change cannot happen from one day to the other. It's something that needs to be maintained. So that makes the like training alone something that is a one-off. And you kind of mention it in a, in a subtle way that sometimes we use training as a solution. Like nothing is going to change. It's business as usual as a, as a leader. I threw out I threw out a couple of uh, of trainings, check the box. I don't care because I care only about the results, which is business. So and we maintain whatever culture we had uh, in the past. So cultural change needs um, an application through constant reinforcement and behavioral change. Uh, behavior change cannot happen from one day to the other. And, and by the way, so I, I just wanted to to even mention a couple of of personal stories, um, like our biases, for instance. I, 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 I have always considered that because of the luck that I had to, to be multicultural in, in, my, uh, in my life. And by the way, I even married someone from another culture, from <laughs> Japanese culture. You can imagine in my house, everything is uh, like a, a cultural fight. And there is a lot of jokes about each culture. Um, we um how can i can i we start defining our own way of doing things when we are in a multicultural envi environment like at home uh so it, and this is rooted in the definition of culture culture is like kind of the, the way we do things here so and for instance with my wife we track jokes about each other's culture so she will take all the latino uh, stories about how emotional we are. I will take a little bit of the stories about how stuck up the Japanese are. But this is the way we are. But in a wrong, in the wrong context, 
that mm. could be interpreted like, what the hell is are they doing? Now, it is the same, and you mentioned culture also uh, uh, about the, the transformation that needs to be done um, in organizations. So if we decide that culture is the way we do things here, it might be that one of the expression of this inclusion and the, of this sense of belonging is that we're openly cracking jokes about each other, about our how do you, uh, stereotypes. Is, is that possible? Is that healthy? And Maria, for you, it's, it's a little bit more in, important because I know that we have, we may have different perspectives because growing in America and the stories that we hear about the uh, how important it has become and how polarizing has become the the topic of DEI in the United States compared to the Europe, let's say, uh, is, is that healthy to to be openly like allowing ourselves to crack jokes about each other's culture? Yeah. Oh, I, it's tricky. I know. <laughs> I, um, I think that again, there is just as we were talking about with the, some of the, the misconceptions around DEI training, we often fall into this either or situation when it comes to using humor, uh, and speaking, uh, you know, speaking more, um, lightheartedly about these identity issues. And so you see kind of on one end, and this is particularly true in the United States, um, this idea of you know, uh, political correctness and cancel culture has been something that has become almost a, a trope, right? Um, and yet those, those instances I think are extreme. Um, and, and then on the other end, it's, uh, there's this sort of, well, if we just make fun of everything and everyone, that's equal opportunity. <laughs> exactly. So I think that, you know, again, um, it's really, to your point, it's contextual. And what might work within one team, within one uh, family, even within one couple, may not be acceptable or appropriate for another. And so I think the, 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 factor that is so important to consider there is trust mm. and and respect right so if if i am in a in a team or in a relationship with others where there is mutual trust and respect uh then we can have that banter <laughs> and it's and it's um our intentions are not going to be misunderstood um but it really does depend on the situation. And what I have found is that to me does not feel constraining. I think it feels constraining for many who say, well, if it's, if it's situational and it works in one and not in the other, then I'm always tiptoeing around. I'm afraid to say or do anything. And I, I understand that sensibility. But for me, the more that I have... Uh, found myself in different situations trying to navigate what a culture of respect looks like. The, it, it's like working out and, and using new muscles. Um, mm. And right, the more that you use them, yeah, it hurts a little bit at first, but then if you keep using them over time, you get stronger. Um, and so for, for me as an interculturalist, as a DEI practitioner, I have found the beauty and actually the liberation 
in being able to um, figure out that this relationship, this situation um, may require me to show up in a different way than mm -hmm. another situation. Um, but that is, a, that is something that we have to learn and we have to be willing to accept. And it's very difficult for people who don't have that skill set or that um, exposure yet, because then it just feels like anything I do, I will be punished for it. Mm -hmm. I found that that this the the thin line that the, that there is, and I relate it also to my personal stories, is to say, when it hurts, you need to be in an environment where you can speak up, speak up, and say this is the line that you shouldn't be crossing, like to be in an environment that where we feel protected enough that it will not be perceived bad. Uh, it is not going to be a moment of retaliation. Yeah, he's not like us. Yeah, get out of the of the of the team. Uh, I still remember that back in the times when I was a, a teenage uh, uh, in in a white society. For me, it was I I didn't want to keep my identity as a Latino. I wanted that they forget that I'm a Latino. That I wanted to be one of them. That nobody says Latino or not. I, I wouldn't mind. The, the jokes itself, but I, I prefer to that. I prefer the, the interactions where they forget my own identity and I'm just one of them. And but for some people, it might be important, right? And, and that's the thing I need to be able to understand. Oh, that's my personal story, but maybe for someone else, it's not, right? Yeah. Mm. And and it goes back to you were mentioning uh, earlier. You, human bias is natural. And part of our it's it's a part of our our brain and how it functions. And when we find ourselves in situations that feel uh, safe, then we're more open to be curious, to be accepting of feedback and critique because we know that it's coming from a place of trust and support. Um, and we're also more willing to, I think, be uh, receptive to, to, to humor, right? To joking and banter. When we feel as though we are in a space that is threatening, that is exclusionary, um, that is, you know, unstable for, for us, you know, to that point, I don't want to be singled out. Um, then we tend to sort of, we contract, right? We become more self-protective and maybe defensive, which means mm -hmm. I'm much less likely to be willing to hear feedback or critique from somebody. And I'm also probably going to judge if somebody makes a joke um, and and I, I, I'm going to be looking at it through the lens of, of how that joke impacts me negatively. If I'm coming from a, a space of feeling threatened or if I've had negative experiences before. So I always think about it from that just basic human conditioning experience as well is this a place where um where a, my my humor is going to be <laughs> understood or misconstrued i'll give you an example actually it's always easier to to give real real life um examples i just recently a couple of weeks ago i uh, i posted a video that i thought was very humorous <laughs> um 
And uh, it was it was poking fun at um, some family members who had uh, given my my children just a a mountain of Easter candy, uh, and it was it was you know they put a great deal of thought and effort into making these beautiful baskets and giving them to my children, and I posted a video online showing me looking at and pulling out just all of this candy as as the as the frustrated mother thinking about my kids eating all this sugar um and i thought it would be hilarious and that they would laugh at it they didn't laugh they were insulted because they said you you posted this video we worked so hard to make this gift for our grandchildren and it felt very offensive that you were making fun of it and it was this moment where i thought you know I could get defensive right now and say, well, that wasn't my intention. You're mm -hmm. being too sensitive. I was just trying to make a joke. But what does that do, right? That just further disconnects us. So instead I said, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. I do appreciate everything that you did and everything, all of the time and effort that you put into this. I'm gonna take the video down. Obviously, I, you know, I was trying to be humorous, but it didn't land well. I understand that now please forgive me. Um, and it and it was fine. And we all moved on. But I think about how often there are those moments of where we have a, a decision to make. Do I try to win the argument and, and uh, defend myself? Or do I listen deeply to this person who is telling me that in some way I have caused harm? Hmm. And I if we can develop the muscles to be able to listen and accept that feedback, we become one step closer to being able to humanize each other on a, on a more macro level. Maria, I really like your example because this is a start of, of the real change that respect on, on people because this ability to be open, to listen, to understand, to be curious about uh, about the other is something that is quite difficult. And it's, as you said, it's a muscle. So you cannot expect that you will do it in in a three hours training or, a, or even in a two days or full week training. A muscle needs to be a constant. It's a constant repetition because the same thing that we have in our brain, and you mentioned the word biases, and let's contextualize it for uh, some of the people in the, in the audience. So biases is something that it could be positive for us. And that's what maybe it has allowed humans to survive because biases is kind of shortcuts instead of processing information like from our rational part of the brain, step one, step two, step three, biases is like, a, okay, we have a, a patterns and by doing the reading these patterns, we can take quicker decisions instead of being a little bit process, uh, process oriented. So it's made to protect us. So we have it embedded, but these biases are also created by the environment, the constant repetition of the culture that we are, that we live in. Oh, you are a woman. You will never make it in math. Uh, you are not made to be an engineer. Oh, Latinos are lazy. Whatever thing that has been, that is going to be constantly repeated, that is going to become our norm, our glasses, lenses, through, through which we are going to be seeing the world. And that's why, for instance, certain minorities will be suffering because the ability to believe in themselves, because they have been constantly being repeated that because you belong to that group, 
you have a path already done. In some communities, it has positive effects. You are the, the uh, most powerful uh, country in the world that has a positive effect in some countries, right? Uh, so for instance, but let me get back to, to the topic because I always am digressing, <laughs> there is no tomorrow. Um, so, and it is about this story about biases. Um, so it, it is kind of the biggest resistance to a culture of inclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, it is natural, even for people who believe that they are super open-minded. I have found myself having a lot of biases in, in life. I hate myself. And by the way, that, that thing, I also that I spot myself having some biases, but then I start whipping myself and it doesn't make it better because I'm judging myself like there is no tomorrow and feeling sorry that I, I associated this with that and what, whatsoever. So how can we train people in a sustainable way in order to remove biases or, or in the organization? Mm -hmm. So um, I have two thoughts on that. The first is the research shows, um, so if we look at, for example, Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald, who were the creators of the Harvard University Implicit Association Test, um, they've uh, been looking at, uh, you know, data related to not only how our brains are biased, but how our implicit unconscious biases impact our decision-making and our behaviors and the results, you know, for almost 30 years. Um, and what they have identified in terms of ways to uh, mitigate bias, we, we can't necessarily eradicate it because no. as you mentioned, these are just, they're neural pathways that our brain flies down because we've been conditioned. And it's also, I mean, it makes sense. It's a survival instinct. To some extent, we need bias in order to be able to make split second decisions. Um, but in complex situations, we need to slow our brain down. And so, um, you know, what the, what the researchers have identified first and foremost is acknowledge at the conscious level that biases exist and that they do influence our decisions and our behaviors, often unbeknownst to us. <coughs> Excuse me. So just the mere fact that we say I have biases is the first, is an important starting point. And the second is to build in uh, checkpoints to ask ourselves in the midst of decision-making, where do biases potentially arise? Uh, and how can I bring this to the conscious level? Um, so if it's, for example, a job interview process, having a, having a question, a reflection question, or even taking the time before the interview to say, what are some of the potential biases that may show up um, based on, as you mentioned, whether it's the gender identity of the candidate, the racial or ethnic um, identity of the candidate, the age of the candidate, what are some of the biases that societally show up and condition us to make certain stereotypes without realizing it? And how am I going to just be conscious of that? The third thing is um, exposure. The more that we expose ourselves to different identities, to stories about individuals from other identity groups, um, when we expand our social network, outside of the proverbial 
inner circle of people who, you know, as you mentioned, we gravitate toward people who are like us people who think like us, talk like us, come from very similar backgrounds, um, whether that's academic or geographic or socioeconomic, but to actually reach out and build relationships with people who live very differently than we do. The research has found that that, that which I, I refer to it as expansion, right? Expanding beyond that proverbial comfort zone um, can help us to mitigate biases because now I have a point of reference that is challenging those implicit biases and creating new neural pathways. So those are, I think, three um, research-backed methods for mitigating bias, acknowledging they exist, um, identifying different inflection points in the decision-making process where we might have to challenge ourselves or slow down our thinking patterns, and simply expanding our relationships and exposing ourselves to different identities, including the identities that are perhaps even ideologically opposed to ours. <clears throat> I think that's what's really challenging for us, right? Because it's not about uh, proving somebody else wrong. It's about, or, 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 or conceding our own ideological beliefs, but simply creating relationships with people who may think not only differently than us, but may we may be vehemently opposed to each other's values and beliefs. Yeah. What I found fascinating that when you were mentioning this path, this journey of acknowledging to having the checkpoints about triggers, um, this consciousness that you need to have inside. I, I was thinking about uh, she's describing mindfulness. Like, okay, I, I need to identify what I what, what I have. I take it and I acknowledge, I can label it, and then I let it go. <laughs> that was, okay, that was a, a little dream that I had in my in my head, but anyways. <laughs> okay. Absolutely, mindfulness is, is an incredibly important tactic for many of our needs in, in life. And we often don't, uh, we don't create the time to engage in mindfulness practices. Um, and in, in our ever increasingly fast paced lives where it is, you know, we're being asked to make decisions at lightning speed. And yet at the same time, we're being asked to not be biased. I mean, those two can sometimes be fundamentally opposed to each other. So it does require us to push ourselves and others to slow down the decision-making process. Indeed. And another topic, in fact, that that is related to the concept of, of, of mindfulness and awareness about of, of our biases is that if we cannot, as and you mentioned it, we cannot avoid to have biases, but what we need is to recognize and activate the rational part of our brain to wake it up so that we have rational points to say, oh, this is a bias. So, and, and, and that's what in reality, mindfulness create. Mindfulness is not about yoga mats going to, to uh, some places, mindfulness is uh, is about just the 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 possibility to balance between the irrational side of our brain with the rational side of our brain, having a, a little bit of control and by recurrent training, having it like coming natural. So when it comes to your bias, you can recognize it and say, ah, this is it. Okay, not judging. I recognize it. I move on, and I have a rational decision and have control of my my emotions. And, and I love that too, um, Yvonne, because it's not 
saying our emotions have no place mm. in the conversation or the decision making. We cannot uh, disconnect ourselves from our emotions, especially when it comes to our identities. When we're talking about culture and diversity and um, and inclusion and equity, our emotions have to have space to be seen and heard and acknowledged. Um, and the more that we can engage in that mindfulness, when we can engage in that um, that ability to examine our emotional state and how it's influencing our decisions, then we're tapping into that rational, that system one, you know, part of our brain. Um, but I think what often we hear from people is get rid of the emotions. Um, they don't have any place here, just engage in rational decision-making. And that's impossible for us to do. So I say, bring the emotions, but just make sure that we own them and we don't let them override our ability to, to think rationally. Indeed. Um, now, what is, how can I put it? Because for my next que question, I need to introduce it correctly. It's like, sometimes you go and you, I don't know, implement a training, uh, a program for DEI. And in introduction, I mentioned that sometimes it can have the opposite effect, in fact, because some people, they have heard, they, they there will always be someone who says, oh, I have a black friend. Uh, I have a gay friend. Uh, well, and, and these people, then you put them into this program. And in fact, they're going to be so close to whatever is the trainer or the facilitator will try to communicate that, in fact, we have reinforced his sense of, uh, I protect what my belief. I have my gay friend that I have met maybe when I was eight years old. And so that makes me non-homophobic and that's uh, that's good enough. Uh, so, but the, the real question is, these trainings, these programs, should they be mandatory? Or should, should people just voluntarily go uh, if they want to, if they feel like they, they, they did it too, and maybe will have a better and more sustainable impact. And maybe even the, the people who chose to do that are the ones who can act as a catalyst in an organization to share stories because we are relatable only through stories. We are not relatable to concepts in a PowerPoint slide. If you tell me your story, I'm going to understand you better. If 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 you are like like me, the Latino who grew up in a small village of 500 people, then maybe somebody somebody a white person who believes that Latino are lazy and is going to feel more related to the person that I am. Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad you asked this question. I have many ideas, <laughs> many thoughts about it. Um, you know the the research around DEI training has indicated that oftentimes mandatory training can be can 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 be problematic um, and can even lead to resistance and backlash. I think that probably has more to do with the quality of the training than it does with whether it's mandatory or voluntary. That being said though, people want to feel like they have uh, autonomy to make their own decisions. Mm. And so anytime you mandate something, it automatically feels like this is compliance training. Mm. So what, what I typically propose with my clients is 
make the training mandatory for people in leadership and supervisory positions because it is critical for their role. It's a part of their job description to ensure that they are building strong, thriving teams and making uh, good decisions for the for the sustainability of the, the organization or the company. So therefore, the DEI training should be mandatory for people in, super, in supervisory positions all the way up to executive. Mm. Um, when it comes to an individual contributor, strongly encouraged is typically what I recommend. Um, and the other thing that I would recommend is, yes, absolutely have DEI specific training that is offered to the organization. And if you really want it to be sustainable and ingrained in the organizational culture, you have to embed these DEI concepts and skills into all training and development. Mm. So that means from the moment that new employees join the organization, it's a part of the onboarding process and the employee orientation. Um, any supervisory skills training should have an, uh, you know, should reinforce these skills around empathy and inclusion and um, constructive feedback uh, and, and holding people accountable for exclusionary behaviors. Um, you can also find ways to reinforce it in any of the, you know, conflict resolution, communication skills training, anything that has to do with human behavior, uh, team building. Even within technical training, I think that there are opportunities for us, for example, customer service skills, right? Uh, and uh, thinking about it, marketing. Um, we've, done, we've done sort of targeted training for uh, departments and divisions within organizations that looks at how you infuse DEI principles into their, the technical training that they provide to their staff. So that way we're reinforcing these behaviors over and over and over again. It just becomes a part of, to, to what you said earlier, when we define culture, this is a part of who we are and how we do things, yeah. rather than just that one time we talked about DEI and then never again. So that is what I have seen to actually lead to long-term change over time, is that you have explicit training, especially for people in leadership and management positions, and that you also infuse these uh, concepts and the representation of diversity across the training curriculum. It looks, it, it makes sense, Maria. Um, now, but it's only applicable, again, coming back to the culture. If, for yeah. instance, you can have all the onboarding trainings, all the repetition of training in different integrations in, inside of all the development areas of, of, of the end of the organization, but if your representation of women in leadership positions is still five uh, percent, so what the hell? Right. <laughs> that doesn't count. We are monkeys, so we see what leaders are doing, and if we see this five percent, then we say, okay, then that's the way it is. In reality, my culture is, despite of all the policies that you may have, all the trainings, that wouldn't work because we look up. We want to be like them. So we are going to mime any behaviors that our leadership is going to, to be making. So, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, it, it has to be an all out effort. Um, and I think knowing the, the needs and expectations of the, of the workforce, what is it that employees 
want to see that would indicate to them that the organization is truly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion and build strategic goals around those expectations. Um, and then actually implement those goals. Uh, so training becomes not just a check the box. We said that we trained people, but it becomes a part of a broader initiative that is, uh, again, mission critical for, for the organization to succeed. Hmm. In this area of <clears throat> storytelling, that is something that I found really, you you made me think a lot about this, this concept of storytelling. So there is the dimension that if we want an organization to live through the principles of to really embed the culture of in, inclu inclusiveness, uh, mm -hmm. we need to be able to tell stories, make that leaders are capable of telling with vulnerability their own stories. We all have our biases and we, I mean, I wish sometimes I had the courage of some people knows a little bit about some stories of biases that I, that I had in my corporate, uh, back in my corporate life. Uh, I have shared with them, but I, I wish I had the opportunity to say it more. So, but this vulnerability, vulnerability, uh, being open to natural biases, for some people, it might be a risky decision, right? Because then you're being judged. Hey, our director of finance did that uh, five years ago, uh, or told that, or or excluded a person just because X, Y, Z. Uh, how can we turn this risk into an opportunity for leaderships to create really a culture that where if we want, I mean, if they are capable of telling their stories that their fails, in fact, that inspires people also to talk more about it and to be and to be more open and receptive to the stories that where they can say, hey, last week I cracked a joke about this lady. That wasn't good. Uh, yeah. And to te tell it to everybody and not being judged because the moment that you have understood that you, you did something that is not good or hurting for someone else, to openly talk about it is good. So this vulnerability of people, is, is it feasible or is it like a big dream that I'm always inventing in my head? <laughs> it is it's absolutely possible and it is necessary to shift the culture um the more power status visibility that an individual has within the organization or the community the more they have to be not only receptive to critique and feedback but soliciting it um and then acting on it and so to your point where I have seen organizational cultures shift the most is when those people in senior leadership positions say, I made a mistake. This is what I did. Mm. This was the harm that it caused. And this is what I'm going to do differently moving forward. No, but my intention was X, Y, or Z, right? But it's, it is what I did the impact and what I'm going to do differently. Um, and it, in doing that and making it public, it is, yeah, it's scary. I'm putting myself in a vulnerable place saying I, I messed up. Mm. Um, guess what? We're human. We're imperfect. And we're going to continue to be imperfect <laughs> in this work. As, as somebody who's devoted my career to this, I regularly say and do things that have a 
an adverse impact on somebody. And I am grateful for those moments when those people are courageous enough to tell me what you did, it hurt. And for me to be able to acknowledge that and learn and then tell others and then do differently is really important. So um, I do think we're starting to see some small, small but not insignificant changes in terms of leaders being more open to vulnerability. But we're a long way away because we have not historically rewarded people for being vulnerable, right? If you're a leader, you have to be tough. You never, you never acknowledge that you made a mistake. Hmm. Right? Um, and so I think we have to, we have to revise that mindset for leaders to recognize that the more power you have, the more vulnerable you have to make yourself so that people feel safe sharing this critical information with you because otherwise you're gonna keep causing harm <laughs> and nobody's gonna be willing to tell you because they don't think you'll listen or they don't think you'll change. Um, and I have started to see that happen within some of my, my client organizations. Um, we actually do a whole training for leadership teams that specifically focuses on receiving feedback related to uh, micro, micro messages, right? So here's, here's a situation, here's a scenario, this is what the leader did. Can you see what those little behaviors were that had an impact? And then we ask them to role play actually receiving that feedback. And it's really hard. It is really hard for them because they talk about how I immediately wanted to justify and explain myself and tell the person, but what you don't understand is this. And they're not allowed to do any of that. They have to say, I hear that this is what I did. <laughs> this is how it caused harm. And this is what I'm going to do differently. But there's something, again, test, creating that, that opportunity to build those muscles mm. starts to make it easier and feel safer. I love this. Uh, this I, I think that one of these days I need to apply it because uh, <laughs> this the, the 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 fact that you are practicing in fact not to justify yourself as you you gave the example not oh but i i didn't think that wasn't my intention no but to go straight and say okay it is what it is and it's natural in human beings let's recognize acknowledge and say sorry if we have hurt someone mm -hmm. i think that the key takeaway about uh about this uh this discussion i felt like yes uh, the and, and we have seen post-COVID the number of DEI trainings, uh, programs that have been deployed, the number of hours, because I saw some statistic about the number of hours that have, that have been deployed has increased drastically. Um, yeah. Because possibly COVID was a big moment of reflection. Uh, there is a lot of people who have left the jobs and, and it has become something like it, it, it is part of the value proposition in order to attract good talent to have a, a good level of DEI. Now, in some countries like in the UAE where I'm living today, uh, diversity is already part of the package. There is 130 nationalities in Dubai. Uh, you go to any workplaces and you, you find minimum 20 nationalities. This is good, but it, this is not the problem. It's not because you are part of the pot 
and as a Peruvian, as a Swiss or what, whatsoever, it's about, do I feel part of this? Or is it like some other people are taking decisions uh, uh, instead of uh, instead of me? The, the journey to change, uh, to really implement the AI can start with training, but it's, it's not a sustainable solution because training, we forget about, about it. We can reflect a lot, but it needs to be something that is embedded in our culture. And in order to embed anything in our culture, we need to get rid of the way we used to do it before. And it's breaking a, a behavior that we have always done. It's a natural thing that will come. So you need time. You, it's like you deliver a baby in nine months. You cannot do it in by feeding someone uh, have a baby in three months. That's not possible. It right. needs the time that it needs in, in order to be something sustainable. And I, I, I really like some, some of the examples that you have given that are rooted in fact on how our brain process has acquired this innate sometimes and defined by the context behaviors. Uh, Maria, tell me one thing. So how can people can one reach you out? Uh, how can people know a little bit more? How can people learn more about DEI? Oh, thank you, Ivan. Well, um, I, I had the opportunity to write a book, uh, which is actually called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace. And it centers on everything that we've been talking about. How do you actually take uh, the learning DEI and embed it into the organizational culture? And although it was written for training and talent development professionals, um, it really is something that anybody who is interested and committed to this uh, can, can use. It's a very practical sort of how-to guide. Um, I also, I have a podcast as well um, called Culture Stew, where my, my colleagues and I regularly interview people who are uh, noted DEI practitioners, as well as authors and academics and researchers focusing on, you know, identity and the multidimensionality of it and what we can do to further DEI in our organizations and our society. Um, and you can definitely uh, find me on LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, my website is www.msmglobalconsulting.com. And there's a great deal more information uh, about me there as well. But um, I think generally for, you know, if people are interested in doing this work and learning more about DEI, there are so many resources out there. Um, and it's really about, again, expanding our own, uh, our own social circles and our willingness to uh, explore our own boundaries. Um, so I would encourage anyone to, you know, just begin wherever you are in the journey, there's always more to learn. There are always new ways for us to challenge our preconceived notions and to acknowledge some of those hidden biases. And the more that we do that, the more we build connections and bridges across our differences. I think um, that, you know, that there's a ripple effect, I think that that can have across our organizations, our societies. So I hope that people got something out of this conversation today. And I'm grateful for you having me on the on the Growth Hacking Culture podcast. Maria, it was a real pleasure. And by the way, I'm going to be putting all of this link below this, uh, this video now. Thank you very much, Maria, for your time. 
uh, I'm looking forward to discuss again about the topic because this topic doesn't end here. I think that there is so much and more and more we get to know a little bit, understand a little bit more about how our brain, uh, brain processes uh, change. And I think the AI can, can become one of the major uh, labs where we are going to explore behavioral change more and more in, in, in organizations. Thank you, Maria, for the lovely episode. Thank you.